you really want to find ways to get uh, in front of people that already like the medium. And what I mean by that is people will spend a ton of money on on ads that are not some of the platforms I mentioned, or they'll spend money advertising in newsletters. The thing is, what you don't want to do is you don't want to have to convince somebody to um, to like podcasts and then to like yours. You just want to get people that already like podcasts to just learn about yours. What's up? How's it going? Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm a few minutes late. I'm very sorry. It's totally fine. Where the are you based? I'm in uh, Fort Lauderdale in my in, in Miami, in Florida right now. Florida. But I'm originally from Toronto. We just moved down here about a year and a half ago. Oh, congrats on the move. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a big move. But yeah. The weather's beautiful. Um, taxes are great, you know, so everything's, everything's working out <laughs> so far. <laughs> what made you want to make that move from Toronto's Canada, right? Toronto's Canada. Yeah, exactly. So we moved down just at the tail end of COVID when uh, things were still actually locked down here in Canada. Um, everything else was a little bit more opened up in, in the rest of the world. We were locked down for a while. So at the tail end of it, we were already planning on um, moving down to the U.S. like pre-COVID, but um, obviously we couldn't during COVID. And then uh, after COVID, uh, we, when, it was, when it was sort of finishing up, we just made the decision to move down. Um, and it's funny because pre-COVID, we were thinking like New York or L.A. And then as COVID progressed, we're like, maybe not New York because it's cold and kind of the same as Toronto anyways. It's just another expensive big city. And LA we weren't too comfortable with either so we tried we tried Florida we tried Miami so not bad interesting did you not guys bad. live in Miami for a few months to test it out or was it just like a direct move no no, no we didn't <laughs> we did not which would have been the smart thing to do <laughs> but you couldn't though you really couldn't because you can't go back easily right it's very hard to go back and forth. And by the way, I really do um, appreciate you being so patient and with me rebooking this like four times. <laughs> um, I really, really appreciate that a lot. It's very kind of you. And I know that it's very frustrating. And candidly, there is no excuse, except life has been just exceptionally busy. Um, I just so. appreciate you doing this. I, I really, I've been, I think I initially found you on LinkedIn and then I've been then listening to your podcast. So I really appreciate you thank taking you. the time to do this. So thank you, Scott. No, it's my pleasure. And, and I know that we um we booked it for an hour if you if you need extra time if you have to then be my guest it's uh, it's 6 20 now eastern so there's not much else happening in my day this is pretty much it perfect perfect is your main focus the podcast at the moment or omnipatch because i noticed that you have a brand how's your time split up between those companies and are there other things you're working on yeah certainly so um my time is sort of split up into three things so I have, um, uh, we have the company on me. So I'm CEO and co-founder of that. Um, that takes up a significant amount of my time, which is, it's a startup. So it, it should take up a significant amount of time. If you're, if it's not, then you're probably not doing it right. Uh, the podcast, when I first started it about almost about three and a half ish years ago, um, I did a lot of the stuff myself, but now it's monetized. So it makes money. So basically how I structured it is every dollar that comes into the podcast, I put that into a team that takes care of the editing and the posting and like all the derivative content from the podcast. So it's very much, I act as the talent and now I have a marketing team that takes care of that. That's only responsible for the podcast and all sort of social media presence. So that includes like newsletter, podcast, social. I still post as much as I can myself, but ultimately I like to turn it into like a little bit of a machine. So it's not as time consuming because it can be super time consuming. Um, and, uh, and then outside of on me, which is a startup that I grew from basically zero to where we're at right now, like about a, a, oh, about a year and a half, almost two years later. Um, now I'm also focused on doing some angel investing, working with some other startups, uh, building out a little bit of an investment portfolio. Um, I'm helping two other uh, close friends build at a private equity firm um, because that's where I see me investing a lot of my capital and my and my own money in the future. And it's something that I also really enjoy because it lets me work with a whole bunch of different types of businesses. So majority of my time now is focused as a startup CEO, as this company grows and eventually is acquired or exits or wherever we take this company, I will move full time 
into um, working in some sort of investor and mentor capacity with startups. Cause that's what I love to do. I've, I've sort of dabbled in that through the years, not formally. So I'm setting myself up to give myself a vehicle through a, a private equity firm and we'll eventually, we'll do some VC investments as well. And I can sort of break down what that is and what the difference is if that's of interest for this show. But um, that's where I can do that for the rest of my life, right? Because if you are an investor and you do find good deals and you can help entrepreneurs scale, well, there's people with money, myself and people exceptionally more rich than I am who want people who can find those deals and help them. And that's really where I see most, the future of most operators is to go into capital allocation because they have an eye for good businesses and eye for good deals. And once they find those deals and they can help those companies grow and scale, and then, you know, you're not working in the business every day, you're working in more of a mentorship advisory capacity, but you can still make good money doing it, of course. Um, and that's where I see me slowly progress, like progressing and transitioning into. So that's, and I'd say that takes up, you know, to break it down, probably 80% of the, the time that I spend is on the startup, on Omnipatch, um, another 10% on the podcast, 10% on investing and, and building a, a firm that can help me do that in the future. Is it similar to the Alex Ambrosi acquisition.com model that you eventually want to come down? Mm. Or is it a bit different to that? Mm. Very similar. Very, very similar to that. Um, so the Alex Ramosi uh, acquisition.com model, from what I understand from the outside looking in, is uh, I I don't know what his split is with people's money outside of his own. So a private equity firm, the traditional model, how it's how it's set up is, yes, you have a private equity firm or fund, you raise money from other individuals, you also put a little bit of your own money in, you find good deals, there's certain metrics you look for, you do your due diligence, and then you buy the business and then you help scale it. And then there's an exit event. Um, I think the Hermosi model is similar to that in the sense that he's finding businesses, he's investing money. I don't think he's owning the business. I'm pretty sure he's letting the founder retain some equity, which is just an investment thesis decision. Um, and there's a certain type of business. So he's very, very specific. So he, I think he's e-com, if I'm not mistaken, over a certain revenue threshold. And he's making promises like if we invest in you at a certain revenue threshold, then we promise to scale your business to, the, to X percentage or by the, to this amount of revenue. And then um, I guess there's going to be some exit event. And that's sort of like the infrastructure that he's set up. So he's like, but that's Alex Ramosi. That's always the way he's operated. So when he was doing gym launch, and again, this is secondhand information. So like if I misquote, I'm not Alex Ramosi, but when he was doing gym launch, he hyper-focused on gym owners and he knew how to help gym owners fill a funnel. So he didn't do other types of customer avatars. His customer avatar was a gym that had trouble getting clients to subscribe to their monthly subscription, right? So he found a perfect way to run ads and run a whole bunch of different things to help fill a gym. So I think that he's doing a very similar strategy where he's hyper-focused on one particular type of business. And he's going all in on that. And he's saying, if if I buy a business with this kind of operator and these kinds of metrics and this kind of category with this kind of system in place, I know for a fact I have the playbook to take it from, you know, 1 million to 10 million. And he's doing that instead of with ads, like he was doing with Gym Launch, he's doing it with capital. So it's like a very defined private call it private equity, call it VC, call it investor play. Because even though sometimes those two worlds seem to intersect, but yeah, it's a very defined investor strategy. So private equity is similar to that, but also slightly different, right? So a traditional private equity firm, you're not just using your own money, you're using LP or limited partners money. Um, and your investment thesis doesn't have to be, I only take econ companies from 1 million to 10 million. It can be that, but sometimes with private equity, you can have diversified thesis. Uh, you can go into different asset classes, different alternative investments or alternative investments, excuse me. So it doesn't have to be so uh, so strict and defined, but it doesn't hurt if it is, because if you if you know what you can do again and again and again and again, and you're always successful doing that thing, it's it's great too. It's a it's a really smart strategy to do. But um, yeah, I think it's I think it's similar, but different from my understanding. But I don't think he's ever publicly even like gone into the interworkings of acquisition.com. So I'm just sort of reading it through his little podcasts and, 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 you know, random little bits of information I find on the internet, but that's what it seems like it is. It's pretty cool how you've been able to sort of put all that information together just from putting the puzzle pieces together. Because um, I see the other side of it. So, I mean, there's only so many ways to structure a thesis. There's only so many ways to invest in companies. There's only so many things that you can do to be successful from an investor perspective. 
So I see, I see threads of him succeeding in gym launch and the way that he was so hyper-specific. And I see that thread uh, sort of between gym launch and what he's doing now with acquisition, but in the future, of course, and maybe even now he's like expanding into different categories or different types of businesses he invests in. But I mean, there's something to be said for the strategy. If you are exceptionally good at doing the one thing, then why not do it again and again and again? Makes a lot of sense. With your private equity model, are you sort of buying the business as a whole and just sort of purchasing whole businesses at once? Right now we are. Yeah, right now we are. So we are now when you talk about private equity, there's even versions of private equity. So the private equity of the the 80s and the 90s was leveraged buyouts, meaning that you're usually buying the whole business, but you're putting in a little bit of your capital and a little bit of your LPs capital, but then you're using the bank to finance 90% of the business or 80% of the business. So right now we're not doing that. We're not doing that. So our private equity model is um, we're a beginner private equity firm. So we're not going to be competing yet with the KKRs and the Black Rocks of the world. Eventually we will, but not yet. But we buy a business, 100% of that business with, with cash from ourselves and from our LPs. So we own 100% of it. And if we choose to, and we find that the founder or the operator that was in place is exceptional, we can we can keep them on the cap table. So we can keep them as equity owners in the business as well, but that's on a case by case, depending on how great the operator is. And sometimes the founder or operator, the person running the business doesn't even want to stay in it, which means that we have to buy 100% of it and then we buy the founder out and then we put in an operator who's going to absolutely crush it. And that's the play. But yes, we do go for 100% of the business. Interesting. So let's say you buy 10 different companies, all 10 companies of founders go off and then sort of take the exit and they go off. How do you go ahead and manage 10 completely different companies and find 10 operators? Like usually the founder knows their business inside out. It's really hard to put in an operator to sort of match that founder. You're correct. So what you're describing is what's called um, a key man problem and or key person problem. The technical term I'm pretty sure is key man problem. But the point is, it's when the business is too reliant on the individual who founded it. Mm -hmm. So what we look for, yes, you're right. 10 different businesses in 10 different verticals where, especially if I don't have experience in it, would be exceptionally hard to manage. Mm -hmm. So how the model works and how our model is set up. And if you go, you can look it up. We're called Celestial. I'll plug the name and you can go see what we're doing. There's a lot of good stuff we're doing for a variety of reasons. But the model is we have a portfolio manager or a partner that is uh, experienced in one particular type of business. So that portfolio manager could have been uh, somebody who's been working in SaaS or e-com or agency for the past 30 years. And that person is really good at that type of business. So what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we focus on acquiring businesses in the types of industries that we're proficient in. We're not going to go after a business in an industry we've never touched because we probably don't know it that well. And I think operational expertise is really, really important. So right now we're focusing on e-com and agencies. Those are the two things that we have in-house as operational experience. And that's how we're going to make sure, kind of like the Hermosi model, we're going to make sure that we are somewhat successful, right? So um, yeah, so we focus on things that we're, we're good at. And then you're like, well, how do you, how do you find operators? I mean, we have a constant pipeline for incredible operators open. Uh, we align the interests of the operator with the success of the business by giving them equity positions in the business as well. And to your last point, uh, the founder is going to be so integral to the success. Yes and no. In most cases, yes, which is why finding the right deal and the right business is exceptionally important. But uh, what you are looking for is a business that does not have that key man problem, where if you remove the founder, the founder went on vacation for three months, the business wouldn't be affected. How does that take place? Well, they have built systems, they have built uh, processes that allow them to take that break. And if you want to read a book on this, it's called uh, Build to Sell. That's like the, the textbook for building a business that is acquirable. And this is something that a founder has to take into consideration from day one. Are you building with an exit in mind? What is the plan? Are you building a lifestyle business or are you building a business that eventually you want to sell? If you're going to sell it, you cannot be a blocker. You cannot be the thing keeping the business together. You cannot be the only person that's responsible for sales, marketing, ops, finance, HR with 200 outsourced people on Upwork. That's not going to ever work. So you got to find a way to build systems and processes. So if you do take breaks, from the business and true breaks, 
that the business keeps making money, the pipelines keep staying full, everything is executed properly. And we look for businesses that implement those. Now, not every founder is great at implementing those, but there are some that are great. Actually, funny enough, the founders that we found that are great at implementing systems are the ones that come from um, management consulting backgrounds who have broken off from a PwC or a Deloitte or a KPMG, and then they build the business because they get the systems and the processes versus you know, the Stanford grad that's just like scrappy building something together, even though that's not a great example of entrepreneurship, that's the other kind of entrepreneur. But ultimately, anybody can build a business that's sellable, um, but it's something that you should look for as an investor, for sure, especially if you're acquiring 100% of it. Um, and it's also something you should think that you should consider as a founder, because you do want your business to be able to be sold. Like, it's funny, we were speaking with an agency just a few days ago, and the founder was so aware that this was a, a, a thing that people looked for. He led the call by saying, just so you know, I went on vacation for three months, you know, last year, back half of last year, and numbers were there, metrics were there, everything worked. And he led with that because he knew that that was so important for somebody taking over. Now, you'll never have the passion that a founder has, but there are, are things that you do know that the founder doesn't know. So there are tools, tactics, strategies that if there are systems and processes in place that allow the business to maintain a status quo without the founder, I can put in an operator that knows different things or more things than the founder knew and scale that business. So that's that's sort of the strategy. So it does have to do with, can you find the right business that has these systems and processes built in? And technically, that would be the argument for why do you pay a private equity firm any percentage of the money that you're putting in? It's because they have the expertise and they spend the time doing this. Because if every business could just operate without a founder, then all you have to do is find a founder that's willing to sell and you give them a good offer, then all of a sudden you own 100% of a business that runs autonomously. And it's hard to find those because to your point, the first thing you brought up is how does the business function without a founder? It's not easy. It's really not easy. So that's something that a founder should think about if they're sort of scrambling and they feel like they're wearing every single hat that's not necessarily a good thing because that's not a very sellable business. It's, it can be an investable business, even though you can make an argument against that, but it can be an investable business. If you have a good business that's growing and there's, you know, all the metrics are there and the growth targets are being hit and you can raise money and you can dilute yourself. That's okay. But if somebody was ever going to buy your business completely and get rid of you, if you want to be getting rid of, not if you don't want to be getting rid of, but if you want to be out and you don't want to work anymore, then that's something you really have to consider. So that's what we look for. Interesting. How do you go ahead and search for these businesses that have been set up in a way where the founder can go ahead and leave for three months and it'll be okay. And the founder also is willing to sell, given that they're on this, they're sitting on this golden egg that just churns out money. <laughs> so um, a lot of relationship building, candidly. I mean, you can look at the marketplaces. So the marketplace is like, for small businesses, biz buy sell, uh, flippa, like all these different types of business sales marketplaces. If you go through a hundred deals there, you'll probably find one that fits that criteria. You just have to put in the time to source them. I mean, you can find um, Chrome plugins that do several hundred thousand dollars a year. You can find SaaS businesses that run without updates could run relatively autonomously to the tune of several million dollars per year you can go on micro acquire these are for very small acquisitions or you build a brand and you become known as somebody who buys businesses and raises money for businesses and then deal flow comes and we can talk about why you'd want to build a brand for that i mean it's pretty uh, you know pretty obvious if you can put yourself out there enough people know you as somebody who buys businesses you're going to get great deal flow and then lastly network so you speak to brokers you speak to people that have done this for a lot longer you speak to you, you if if you're trying to do anything it's the people that you know that are going to make it happen right so if i'm trying to find businesses uh, i'll reach out to other people that are in private equity that are in family offices high net worth individuals that get deal flow that have been doing this for 30 years and they're going to have deals that come to them multiple deals that th that doesn't fit like their specific thesis, right? So if I could work with another private equity firm, I could work with a VC uh, firm that acts as a feeder into a private equity uh, environment. So there's just, it's knowing people, it's doing it's doing the the networking and the homework. And eventually you get you get deals in front of you where for whatever reason, the founder doesn't want to maintain the business. They have built systems so they can sell it. And, and candidly, you know, it's some of these businesses are 
are accidental mistakes. So sometimes you have a founder who started a side hustle that actually did quite well, and they don't have the capacity to maintain it, or they need capital for whatever reason to start another project. The, the agency that we were just looking at buying, the, the, the example I just referenced, he was looking for a large sum of money to start like a pretty significant SaaS company. So he didn't want to go raise money from VCs. He wanted to sell the agencies like, listen, we're doing good. It could be better, but we're doing good. Systems are in place. I can exit. I can sell it. I can make some money. And then I can go start my SaaS company, be 100% equity owner. So there's like a million and one circumstances as to why somebody would want to cash out. But I mean, the 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 more feelers you have out there and the more people you know, like anything in life, it just makes it easier, right? The whole network is your net worth and all the other you know, motivational quotes around meeting more people and, and making the right connections. Now, talking about that, how has the podcast sort of aided in that? Because the main reason I sort of do my podcast is just to meet amazing people. And it's a great excuse. It puts my foot in the door. And I imagine maybe you've done it for the same reason. But tell me about the podcast and how that's aided the private equity. So the podcast has aided everything I've done because I've never actually made it about one thing, which is very different than why a lot of people start podcast. You started the podcast for your, you started your podcast, the exact same reason why I started my podcast. I just wanted to meet cool people. I knew some cool people. I'm like, okay, I need a content strategy. I want to meet more cool people. This all makes sense. Podcast is the way to do it. If I'm going to talk about really complex, meaningful topics, I know that I don't want to be doing, you know, 30 second TikToks. Maybe that can be one portion of my content bucket, but ultimately I did want to build a personal brand. That was for sure in my mind because I saw what Gary V was doing with his personal brand and launching VaynerMedia, Empathy Wines, uh, you know, Vayner Sports literally could launch anything, anytime he wanted, right? He has millions of eyeballs. I'm like, I don't know what I want to do with the brand, but I know I want to get there. So if I launch something, then I can eventually just have this community of people that will immediately look at it and I can, you know, I can get some feedback from that. I can launch products against that community. So we're going to build a, we're going to build a brand and podcast made sense because it was the easiest way to create content at scale. And, you know, I don't know what your content strategy is, but mine is very simple podcast, long form pillar goes into a billion derivative pieces of content and they go everywhere. Right. So this is like sort of like the podcast playbook or the long form content playbook. And I think there's also a Gary Vee strategy and probably been echoed by many others. So, I mean, the podcast was a means to an end to build a brand. And I kept it open because I wanted to create something that I would consume. So I like I like learning from people like uh, Tim Ferriss and Tom Bilyeu and other people that just have really smart conversations. And I figured I can create something like that for myself. And once you build that critical mass of people, then... When you're working on something that you're passionate about, you just leverage the audience to expedite that. So for on me, when I'm looking for, I have a, a relatively good sized LinkedIn following. I'm looking for buyers to bring our product into retailers. I can reach out to literally anyone in the world at this point, because I'm probably a second degree connection, if not a first degree connection and make an introduction, get a conversation started. So, I mean, the podcast helped me build a LinkedIn audience. And that helped me get connections for a business that I'm actively running. Uh, I get so much deal flow. It's actually ridiculous. But I mean, like every day I have people like, hey, take a look at my pitch deck, pitch deck, pitch deck. Even before I was trying to build something that was a, an investment vehicle, like people were always reaching out. So, I mean, when you surround your, when you position yourself as an authority in business and entrepreneurship, and then all of a sudden you add the layer of I'm actively investing in companies. And then you put that out against your audience which is your podcast your newsletter your social like every the effects are just compounded because instead of just speaking into nothingness you're speaking into an audience of 50 100,000 500,000 a million plus right like people see that at scale and if the audience is dialed in which is a business audience then a portion of that not a, not everyone of course because i didn't start a private equity podcast so not 100% of the people listening are like care about private equity but a percentage of them do so immediately i have some activity so like, why did I build it? I built it for this reason in particular. So whatever I'm, you know, whatever that thing is in my life that I'm trying to accomplish, I have that audience to go into right away. And then also I, it doubles as like what you just said, you get to talk to really cool people like all the time, which is a side effect. And then you build really great relationships. I have like, I have lifelong friends that I've built after a 60 minute conversation with them over Zoom. And then it just turns out they're really great people. And then, you know, we meet in, when we're in the same city the next time. And all of a sudden you have a good friend who's also just very cool because of whatever they've accomplished in their life. 
So multiple reasons why the podcast happened, multiple reasons why I will probably do it till the day I die, to be quite honest. I love it. And it's been, you know, it, it you build a brand. I'll, I, I echo the slot. It's like truly life-changing and anybody can do it. It doesn't have to be generalized. Like, you know, like us, like we're not saying this is like a, 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 a VP marketing and CPG podcast, or it's not like a venture capital um, in AI podcast or a, even a private equity podcast, but you can also do that. And then the effects are going to be even more rapid if you align your podcast and your personal brand with explicitly with the thing that you're doing. So it depends on what you want to accomplish. But I mean, even just doing this, it, it will still have some like net positive, right? So interesting. How did you go about getting a podcast to a point where it was like break even? Because I've noticed over the last two years I've been doing this, it's been like a very slow growth. You you release each episode, I might get like a hundred listeners. Um, you re you release on YouTube, that's like another hundred. You pump out maybe three clips a day on TikTok, and that's like 200, 200. So you might get like six hundred views a day on TikTok. Um, one in every fifty clips might go viral, and you might get a hundred k views there. But like it's yeah, it, it's like this hard long grind. Is that something you've experienced or? Yes, I think that it was probably about probably about two years in when I started seeing momentum. It wasn't as it doesn't seem as strenuous as what you what you're describing. I mean, I was hitting so after about two after about two years, I was at about a hundred thousand downloads a month. Wow. Yeah. So that was a combination of and I don't I'd have to review like the content strategy, but similar to what you're doing. So a significant amount of social. So every podcast goes into video clips. Um, I would say it's about three clips, two to three clips across all platforms every single day. Um, building up a, a pretty large email list as well helped quite a bit. So I have about 100,000 on my on my newsletter and every podcast goes out against my newsletter. Um, so I'm always cross-pollinating as well. Every show goes into multiple stories on Instagram, goes into shorts, reels. I uh, was using Snapchat Spotlight as well. So it's just, it's a, a nonstop onslaught of content. And then I think the second thing outside of just massive content marketing, when I say content marketing, it was like across all social, I would say about 20 clips a day. Um, it was just a ton. And then uh, that podcast gets transcribed. Uh, and then I push it across um, a newsletter. So I transcribe it and turn it into an actual article, not just a transcription, but like an article speaking through in human version, not just transcription, um, the things that we spoke about in the podcast. That would go newsletter, that would go to Hacker Noon, that would go to Medium, that would go to my website. Um, and I'm trying to think what else. And then of course, uh, every podcast also, every single question you asked uh, as it's being edited, Every question is timestamped and then broken up into a separate clip. And those are all uploaded onto a playlist on YouTube. So not only do I have the full podcast on YouTube, I have probably 20 different clips in a playlist, each with their own title. That's for YouTube SEO. Um, and then the like outside of that, Matt, like that's a lot for content marketing. And obviously it helps when you scale out. And I think that's where you can use tools like Upwork to find really good people to help you out with some of the admin and the posting and, and like the whole workflow. But then um, a lot of guesting on other podcasts helps. Um, that's for sure. Uh, so guesting on podcasts, it is rather time consuming, but I think that's a, a useful way to tap into other audiences. Another strategy that's worked very well, um, I do I run paid ads against the podcast as well. So I run paid ads um, on CastBox right now. Um, and there's another uh, service called Mopods that I've run paid ads with. So those are the two sort of brokers that help me run paid ads. I've never really tried to run like Facebook or Google ads, mostly because you're not going to get great conversions. But if you use some of those services, you can run paid ads to some effect. And there's other ones as well that run paid. I think Player FM runs paid ads. And there's a few others that I'm not really that big on, but uh, those ones that I just mentioned are quite good. Um, uh, what else? So that's running paid. And then lastly, I do show swaps with people as well. So what that means is I, you can do a few things. I mean, you can like basically share a host read 
uh, ad in your show with another podcast of similar size. So you can say, hey, I'm going to record a 15, 30 second clip from my show. And then you're going to record one for your show. And then like no charge, of course, we're just going to swap it. So we're, you know, tapping into existing audiences. Or what I actually like a little bit better, um, because it's even less time consuming than doing a mid roll is uh, literally taking a full show from another podcast and putting it in my RSS feed and doing the, and then taking my one of my best shows and putting it in their RSS feed. And I literally just say at the beginning, like, hey, welcome to Success Story with Scott Clary. Today, you're going to hear a clip from so-and-so podcast, and he's going to be discussing this, or he's going to be interviewing this person. If you like this podcast, make sure to go to www.soandsospodcast.com, subscribe for more of this. Super simple, tons of value to the, of course, you have to vet the content that you're getting and putting into your own RSS feed and standing by, but tons of value to your audience. You're exposing them to a new audience as well. Um, and then vice versa. And the best thing I can tell people out of all these things, out of the content marketing, out of the paid, out of the podcast swaps, um, you really want to find ways to get uh, in front of people that already like the medium. And what I mean by that is people will spend a ton of money on, on ads that are not some of the platforms I mentioned, or they'll spend money advertising in newsletters. The thing is, what you don't want to do is you don't want to have to convince somebody to um, to like podcasts and then to like yours. You just want to get people that already like podcasts to just learn about yours, because that's where you're going to have a much cheaper conversion on that on that particular activity, right? So if you're going to try and win anybody over in anything, and I do the same thing for newsletters. If, if I'm advertising, uh, if I'm trying to get people onto my newsletter list, I'm going to advertise in the newsletters. I'm not going to advertise in a podcast for my newsletter because obviously newsletter readers could hang out in podcasts or they may not. I have no idea, but I do know that newsletter readers definitely hang out in other newsletter lists. So, I mean, that's uh, like sort of my mindset regarding marketing, but that's, that's pretty much what I did for about three and a half years nonstop. That is so And smart. still do, by the way. There's, there's not much else to it. it. Even like today, there's not much net new. Interesting. Out of all those things, what do you think sort of helped you get to that 100K mark? Which one had the big, biggest impact? Well, I would say that paid always will have the biggest impact. Mm. I, I mean, like that's like if you if you have capital to put up for anything, that's silly. But I don't want to say that paid is exclusively what gets you there because then people listening to this are going to be like, well, I have no chance if I don't have bad budget. So that's not necessarily true. I just think that maybe you're delayed by six months or a year, which is in the grand scheme of things, if you're doing this, it's not meant to be like a quick overnight thing anyways. So if you actually just took out any of the paid that I put towards it, um, then you would still have a massive content marketing play. And also for anybody thinking, well, that's a lot of work. Yeah, no shit. It is a lot of work, but I learned how to do it all myself day one, meaning I did everything from coding my own website, to my own audio, video editing, to my own social clips, to my own newsletter writing. Like all of that was me day one. And then once you're great at it, and or at least you have like a, a certain level of proficiency, then you can hire people to fill in some gaps. But yes, day one, it is a lot of work. And, and podcasting is a lot of work because there is no organic reach when you start. But if you think about the one asset that would build the biggest amount of trust with the audience, it's being literally in their ear for like 30 to 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. There is no other, YouTube is the thing that comes closest, but even then a podcast, and this is actually why you can demand such high um, uh, CPM rates or, or cost per mil rates with advertisers. It's because the audience is so exceptionally loyal. You want to you want to look at a case study, uh, Google um, advertising on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Someone wrote a case study of spending, I think, about $50,000 on advertising with Tim Ferriss's podcast. And whatever the widget, well, I can't remember what it was, it was like sold out because yeah. a loyal podcast audience is tough to build. But once you build them, you they feel like they are the host's best friend because they were in that host. The host was in their ear, excuse me, 30, 60 minutes a day, multiple times a week, sometimes for years. So there's a huge amount of affinity that's built with that audience. And that's why it's tough to build, but it's not a, it's not a short game. And I, in my opinion, it's one of the best ways to build trust with an audience over the, over a period of time on any, on any channel. That's amazing. Tell me a bit about Omnipatch. So you've been working on that. How long have you been working on that brand, um, Scott? So that's just, so about a year and a half. 
Um, so I was brought in as a co-founder CEO. So I basically met a founder who had an incredible vision and uh, had no, no, like basically had some operational experience and they had some money too, but they didn't have as much operational experience. So it was a great partnership. Um, and they're more the product and, and, and I guess the product and evangelical side of the business, whereas I'm more of like the sales and marketing and operations and raising money and hiring and scaling. So raise a two and a half million seed round, uh, very traditional CPG play day one. Um, we're, we're going direct to consumer across Shopify, Amazon, walmart.com, like all the, all the things, um, you know, between paid ads, looking for positive ROAS, navigating Facebook and iOS updates, figuring out TikTok, Pinterest, um, basically every paid channel and finding ways to, you know, reduce CAC, increase LTV, increase AOV, rollout subscriptions. Um, that's all the stuff we've done. <laughs> and actually I should give you a, a little brief, um, discussion of the product before I get too much into what I've done over the past year and a half. So the product is, is disruptive. And I say that because it is a vitamin supplement product. And the reason why I got excited about it, because that also is very important, um, is because in the vitamin supplement industry, for the longest time, you go to a GNC vitamin shop, you take pills, powders, gummies for vitamins, for, you know, energy, for anything, right? For sleep, if you take melatonin. So what we've done with Omni Patch and what got me excited is everybody knows what a nicotine patch is. It delivers, you know, it delivers an active ingredient through your skin. Very old school. No one's really revolutionized or used that technology since. And there's a couple of reasons why, but ultimately we've created vitamin patches that allow you to take any active ingredient that you'd find in a supplement from a vitamin shop or a GNC. You take that vitamin patch, you put it on your skin, and the active ingredients, so it could be caffeine, it could be melatonin, it could be B, it could be a B vitamin, it could be any vitamin that we want to put into that. It passes through your skin at roughly a 90% efficacy, which is substantial only because if you think about the efficacy of actually taking an oral drug or vitamin or supplement, only about 30% of it go into your bloodstream versus 90% through your skin. So it passes through your dermis, through your skin, into your body, uh, no filler, no additives, no garbage, um, and then you get basically a sustained release of that active ingredient. So that's why I'm super excited. So it's not just um, like a vitamin supplement product. It's like a disruptive way to take vitamins and supplements. So it's a little bit habit changing because people are not used to this yet, which is a whole level of complexity in building a business. But ultimately, the way that we supplement in the future, we have to get rid of all the uh, the fillers and the additives and the garbage that we put into our body. So what Omni Patch is doing is it's creating a, a safer, healthier way to supplement quite literally anything. And right now we're focused on things that are very common and normal to you and me. So we have an energy patch, we have a hangover patch, we have a vitamin patch, we have a sleep patch, we have all these very normal things. But the future, you could, in theory, put any sort of drug into this patch as well. Now, the caveat is the active ingredients have to be under a certain molecular weight, not Literally not everything in the world can go into a patch, but I would say that 90% of the things that you supplement with on a day-to-day -day is below that certain molecular weight, and it can pass through your skin into your bloodstream. Interesting. This is super duper coincidental. I've been sort of in the e-com dropshipping space, and I've been sort, yeah. of to sort of launch a brand, and I think the formula is a product that is lightweight, easy to ship, high perceived value, yeah. low defect rate. And that's exactly what the patch product has. Super coincidental. We recently launched a patch brand. It's called Patch Me. There's already a website. We've launched like three or four TikToks. So it's super duper coincidental. So if you randomly that's so see funny. That, um, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I did not, like, it's not because of this podcast. It's just super <laughs> duper coincidental. But it, but so now there is competition. Like you're, you're, you're referencing, you're referencing the fact that this is now becoming more normal because a few reasons. I mean, once people try patches, they realize it works. Now they've created a new habit. So there's benefits to patches, right? I mean, you can have sustained release of active ingredients over an eight plus hour period. Whereas with anything oral, in most cases, the active ingredients have a certain half-life. I mean, you could have like a coating around the supplement or whatever, but realistically, most things that you take from a vitamin shop, GNC, or, you know, a drug, a drug section at a CVS or a Walmart they're going to have a half-life, meaning you drink a coffee at nine and you drink a coffee at 12 and you drink a coffee at five if you want that much caffeine. 
but ultimately it's not the most effective way. And even like, you know, there's an argument to be made for all the fillers used in these supplements. They're so full of garbage. I can pull PubMed studies on some of the fillers that are actively used in very, very um, normal vitamins and supplements. And if you expose a population to some of these fillers for like 10 or 20 years, there's significant carcinogenic impact for some of these fillers by just taking them for an extended period of time. So fillers in your body are not great. We are not taking vitamins and supplements in an effective way. So that's what Omni Patch is attempting to solve for. And to your point, yes, as a as a as a first iteration of the business, we went direct to consumer. It's it's cheap to launch. Direct to consumer is more expensive to actually fulfill than if we went direct to retail, of course, because we have to pick and pack every single order. But um, it's a cheap way to launch, um, and uh, it lets you test the market. Of course, with the ideal with the ideal product, I would say that you're correct in everything except for the fact that you don't. If I was going to give advice, I actually wouldn't say that on me is the easiest product to take to market direct to consumer because there's habits that you have to change. Mm. So if it's a commodity, you don't have to change habits. If if I'm liquid death, I don't have to change habits, right? People know what water is. If I'm even a five-hour energy, I mean, I'm just another iteration of Red Bull. But mm. the the act of putting a patch on versus drinking something orally or taking a pill orally is a habit change. So I have to change someone's habit if they have a coffee every morning. It's not impossible, but what it, what, it does create a, an extreme amount of requirement for education and trust with the brand. So there's a lot of trust that's required before your CAC or your customer acquisition costs come down. So it fits a lot of the, it, it, there's a lot of good with it, but like any business, there's also headache. Um, but I mean, we, we're figuring, we've, we figured out the direct consumer model now, but we're still going into retail. I mean, that's the next version. So the next iteration of, of this CPG company is, is, uh, I hired a VP of sales that has significant retail experience, has relationships with every retailer and we're, and we're, we're starting in South Florida now. Um, and we're going to retailers and we're negotiating retail deals and we're, and we're in stores now, um, but um, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, the playbook for any CPG eventually. And then, of course, everything helps each other, right? So if, you know, if you're in retailers, and this is actually a business problem that more people should try and solve for, but if you're in retailers and you see a product and then you go home and then you get retargeted somehow, or you see that product online and you Google it, then you get retargeted, then your conversion is going to be much cheaper for that customer because they've already seen it in a Walmart, for example. And and so on and vice versa, right? If I target somebody and they see it online and they see it in a Walmart, like, oh my God, it's a real company. It's not just some fake garbage, whatever. So I'm going to go buy it in Walmart. So every effort that you do obviously impacts each other, but you have to think. So direct consumer, cheaper to get set up, uh, more expensive to fulfill. Every, every customer I have to pay shipping for versus uh, selling a pallet to a buyer at Walmart. Uh, that's one buyer I have to convince. Obviously way harder to convince a buyer at Walmart than somebody sitting at home to buying a $15 product, but ultimately you want to go both avenues and you want to excel at both at both models because that's really the future of where you want to take a CPG company. And there's arguments you made for which one you go into first, but at the end of the day, you have to dominate both. Now is the process for direct-to-consumer launching a bunch of organic content, creating super unique content that can go viral, the ones that go viral, put some paid ads behind it, see if it can perform mm -hmm. well with paid traffic. If it doesn't move on to the next viral content and just basically mm -hmm. keep looping that, or is there like a better strategy? That's more or less, the <laughs> that's pretty much it. I mean, you, then you find ways to, so yes, that is the strategy. Um, you do all the marketing things. So, I mean, you're blogging on the website and you have to have the right keywords in the blog and you have to have the right keywords in in the actual title of the blog, you have to be working with affiliates and influencers and you give referral codes and links. You work with UGC content to create virality and then use the best performing UGC into your paid. Um, you do all the marketing things. I mean, as many as you can. I would say that the things that I just mentioned are probably the easiest lift day one. The things that are a little bit harder to measure and probably a little bit less important when you're starting is like going to a big festival or setting up a booth in a mall or like things that are more brand than performance. Like you got to get your performance marketing down like ASAP before you spend $50,000 to get a booth at a trade show. 
So I think that getting that performance marketing down is key. And the performance marketing is, again, using the right creative to, to make sure your ads convert. And then once you have the right creative to make your ads convert, then how do you increase the average order value per customer? How do you get somebody to turn from a one-time purchase into a subscription? Do you, have, do you even have a subscription option available? Um, how are you, you know, your nurture sequences to uh, get people who've abandoned cart or abandoned checkout to actually buy your evergreen sequences to get people that signed up for a discount code that never even added something to cart to get them to re-engage with your website. All those things, I think those are a little bit, well, they are more performance-based um, and that's what you have to do to get a company off the ground, especially if you don't have exceptional money to burn, which I think in 2023 is the is the way to build a company, build it profitably. I think that's the most responsible way to build a company. I mean, you can look at examples um, of companies that were not built profitably, including like the WeWorks and the Airbnbs, which are huge names. But I think that there's a lot of luck involved. So those companies were built in the right VC climate. Um, the right financial and economic climate where VCs were willing to fund a company like that. So I think that right now you have to build a company and you should always, in my opinion, build a company so it's profitable. So you don't have to worry about what the market's doing. If your company is profitable and you know how to make X more dollars, you know how to make $2 for every $1 you spend, that's, that's true success. And then you can iterate on that as opposed to just waiting and sort of burning money to your next funding round which I think is a stupid way to build a company. But a, I mean, that's the way many entrepreneurs, unfortunately, sometimes work. And sometimes I actually think that the reason why they do that is because they raise money too early and they don't set proper expectations with their investors. So their investors put in money, first time founder, instead of bootstrapping or, or self-financing, now they have investor obligations to make. And all of a sudden now there's a time frame right? There's a time frame where they have to, they're not going to get any more money. So they, they raise, they raise a million, 2 million, 5 million. And when it's like 4 million spent and you're not profitable, well, now we got to go raise. So business shuts down, not literally, but I mean, founders not focused on business anymore. Founders focused on raising money. Founders going on roadshows, founders reaching out to a thousand different VCs pitching all day and you raise your next round and you're still not profitable. And then you you're into this, this hellish hamster wheel of raising money and and sort of and then you keep diluting yourself and then you know the sad thing is the horror stories of of entrepreneurship fast forward five years six years and the founder is so diluted and then Forbes or you know Fast Company publishes that they sold the company for two hundred fifty million dollars and they're like walking away with pennies and they're too embarrassed to talk about it because their last five years have been hell and they've been so diluted that they actually aren't getting a good you know payout from that so I mean this is like a little bit of a rant but I mean if you're gonna do a startup um, focus on profitability. And and be careful about taking money. It's it always comes with conditions. That's like the entrepreneurial takeaway. <laughs> with performance marketing, are you sort of looking at like launching, say, a hundred organic pieces over a period of two to three months? Out of the hundred, maybe five goes viral. Out of the five, you put paid ads, paid traffic behind it. Maybe one would be profitable, and you see a blip in revenue, and then that creative then sort of dies out as you sort of put in say 10,000, 20,000, I don't know how long it lasts. And you're sort of now running another hundred sort of creatives and sort of keep doing this loop. Yes, that is. Yes. That's the painful, that's the painful process of finding good creative and, and, and mitigating creative fatigue. Yeah. I mean, like I, there's actually a tool that now I can't remember the name of it, but it's something that my, my CMO is using and it basically can create, and I'll have to find it for you and I'll, I'll send it to you, but it creates like, you put in videos and you put in like, this is, these are five intros. These are five hooks and mm. these are five pieces of content. And this is the text. These are five versions of text and it'll create like 200 outputs of all these mm. different inputs at scale. And then you have 200 pieces of creative to go test. Wow. I will find that tool, but I just can't remember what it's called now, but mm -hmm. I, it's like things like that will allow you to do that at scale, at least somewhat at scale. And those winning creatives, how much revenue are you looking at from one winning creative? Because I know in dropshipping, when you have like a winning product with creative, that product can sort of make like $100,000. But I'm imagining yeah. like a winning creative with a sort of more or less wow factor unique product might only make $20,000. i am just guessing. Yeah, I mean, so, so I'm, yes. So a winning creative, if you're going to hit like a two to three X ROAS, that's really, that's really good right now. I mean, 
at the beginning, early days of, of Facebook, you could hit like a 10, 10 plus X, same with TikTok, but that's not the case. And, and 20 to 30, 30 to 50 would be good. But there's also, I mean, so candidly, we don't have a huge TAM. So that's a whole other conversation. So total addressable market for patches is very small, mm -hmm. which means that we have a certain limit on the people searching out patch products, meaning that our audience size at this point is limited, which is a whole conversation about disrupting and building a in a blue ocean, right? But what you really have to focus on is if that's the case, then how do you grow your TAM? And our TAM would be supplements and, and nutraceuticals, which is like multi-billion dollar TAM. But that's, yes, to your point, that's a struggle in building in a blue ocean. But that's not the case for every company. So as a, as a direct-to-consumer lesson in a, in a, with a commodity versus a company building in a blue ocean, well, you could have, I don't know, there could be no limit in some, in some cases. Uh, and I'm not working in one right now, so I don't actually have statistics on if I had unlimited search traffic for a certain term. If I put $100,000, could I get $300,000 back? I have no doubt. Yeah, for sure. But mm -hmm. it depends on the category that you're building in and the amount of people that are actually looking for your product. If the total addressable market is not built yet. I mean, we don't have a lot of competition, which is a blessing and a curse, which is why we're not a commodity, right? Interesting. Scott, I really appreciate your time today. I could go on forever. I have like a meeting and another meeting in five minutes, but if it wasn't for that, I'd probably talk to you for another half an hour. Like I wanted to talk about um, like the process of finding operators. I wanted to talk about sort of. You can do a part two if you want. Yeah. You can do a part two if you want. email list to a hundred thousand. And what else did I wanted to ask? Um, just your whole podcast setup. Oh, the similarities you found between all your successful guests. There's so many questions I wanted to ask. So I'm really appreciate it for your time. And yes, I'd love to do a part two. You'll do it. We'll do a part two. We'll do a part two. Okay. Deal. <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott. Where can people find more about you, your podcast, your brands? Where's the best place for people to reach out to you? Um, so you can go to scottdclary.com. That's where everything is. And then um at Scott D. Clary for every social. I got the same handle across everything. So super easy. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. I really appreciate it. You're so open. You're so transparently shared so many golden nuggets i could definitely feel you weren't holding back you sort of have this abundance like abundance mindset which is something i love I straight away chatting with you so yeah thank you so much for your time today my pleasure man enjoy your meeting we'll do another one that's another episode of the podcast if you guys made it this far please drop me a review on spotify and apple i've been reading all the reviews i'd love to get any feedback possible and yeah thank you so much if you made it this far i really appreciate your time and i'll see you guys next week with another episode peace